Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. A quick warning for today's podcast, we'll be discussing a high profile crime today, and that includes details that may not be appropriate for children to listen to. Five and a half years since it happened, the murder of 10-year-old Victoria Martins remains one of Albuquerque's well-known crimes. This month, New Mexico courts were supposed to hear one of the most highly anticipated trials to come from that crime, the trial of Fabian Gonzalez, one of three people charged in Victoria's death. Yeah, the key word there is supposed to. There's been another delay. This time, the jury trial is being pushed into summer due to a reported COVID exposure. Yet another roadblock in this case. We've been seeing some criminal felony cases and other court cases get delayed during the pandemic. And if you're unfamiliar with this case, in 2016, August of 2016, Victoria Martins, who was 10, was living in an Albuquerque apartment on the west side with her mom, Michelle Martins. Firefighters were called to that apartment for a call of smoke. They found Victoria dead, her body mutilated and lit on fire. The night of the murder, Michelle Martins, along with her boyfriend, Fabian Gonzalez, and Fabian's cousin, Jessica Kelly, they were all arrested and charged with crimes in relation to Victoria's death. Did you have anything to do with the death of this girl? (laughs) No, I didn't. And again, Gonzalez's trial was supposed to start in early January, but in the first week of the year, the courts announced that the trial had been postponed, this time after prosecutors were exposed to COVID-19. Judge Cindy Leos ruled the trial to be rescheduled for July. That means Gonzalez will have a waited trial for nearly six years after first being charged in this case. So there's been dozens of motions filed in the case over years, including when the district attorney's office even overhauled the charges in the case, announcing that they believed it was an unknown fourth person who killed Victoria. Gonzalez has also changed his defense attorneys in the case. So there are clearly a lot of complications that have led up into this most recent delay. We wanted to bring in someone with more perspective of the whole court process. So here with us today is Jennifer Burrell, president-elect of the New Mexico Criminal Lawyers Association. She's been a criminal defense lawyer out of Santa Fe, but she's also spent years prosecuting uh, violent offenders and white-collar crimes. She's taken more than 100 criminal cases to trial here in New Mexico. Jennifer, thanks for joining us. Oh, good to be here. Well, first of all, wanted to start with just how long this delay has been. Gonzalez, he's charged with multiple felonies, though mainly reckless abuse of a child resulting in death and also eight counts of felony tampering with evidence. There's been a lot of things that have unfolded in this case since the initial crime. But I wanted to ask you, you've seen the headlines as well with this case. How common is it to see a case delayed for six years? And what's your reaction seeing the delay in this case? It's very uncommon to have something uh, be extended this long for six years. Um, To put it in perspective, I think it's important to kind of understand um, what the law is in terms of a time frame on speedy trial. When I first started practicing, once a case was in district court, you only had six months to bring it to trial. Um, They did away with that and they they do more of an analysis now. Um, So they put the all crimes into three categories. So one would be a simple case, one would be an intermediate case, and one would be a complex case. 
Um, you can't even raise speedy trial as an issue for the court to consider in a simple case until you hit the one year mark. Um, in an intermediate case, um, it would be 15 months before the defense could actually raise that. Um, and in a complex case, which obviously this one very much would fall into that category, it's 18 months. So we are way beyond even that 18 month mark. And I think that's a really good way to kind of start putting this in perspective. One of the big problems in this case, as you can see from the original charging documents where he was charged with murder and all other kinds of crimes and a bunch of and ors, um, which kind of signals to everybody that they don't really know what they're talking about. If they did, it would be very precise. And um, here that wasn't the case. And then what we find out much later was that the district attorney came in and dismissed a lot of those charges, finding out that there was a false confession um, with one of the co-defendants and their case kind of fell apart. I need to inform you that many of the key elements in Michelle Martin's statement to police were false. And that much of what has been reported about this case is simply not true. And you'll notice just from the witness list uh, the district attorney has filed, um, the first one was filed in September of 2016. So right after the charges were filed, um, they disclosed 96 witnesses. And then in March, so what about six months later, they disclosed an additional 34 witnesses. And then in July of 2017, an additional 46 witnesses. What does that mean? Like we're not talking about specific witnesses to the crime, correct? These could be experts, forensic analysis, who would be considered witnesses in Fabian's case. There was a number of motions that the state filed to get telephone data, um, Facebook data, you know, those kind of things um, that normally could be done with a subpoena, but a lot of those major corporations want a court order. And so they filed those motions. So some of the subsequent witness lists have, you know, some of the records custodian for Facebook or for T-Mobile. Um, so those would, like you were saying, would not be people who actually witnessed the crime. But we did see additional witnesses who were neighbors um, in the apartment complex. So there are still fact witnesses that are were being added after the initial investigation. What we can see just from the public presentation of this is that the district attorney failed in its initial investigation, had to retool the charges, and is continuing an ongoing investigation in that they're adding dozens of witnesses every time they add a new witness list. So that contributes significantly to the delay, because if a defense attorney comes into a case when the person's charged has all the evidence, they can prepare their defense, question witnesses, get it all done, and go to trial, right? But if the, if the district attorney discloses evidence and then six months later finds more evidence and six months later finds new evidence and even retools the charges, then you're constantly having to restart that defense process just because the district attorney um, hasn't completed their investigation. And that's really the problem here. I recognize that these revelations are not consistent with the public's perception about what happened to Victoria. But I wanna share this information with you in order to help the community understand where this case is going and ultimately assist in the apprehension of everyone involved in this horrific crime. When we look at what's going on and the district attorney's constant motions on evidence and trying to get more evidence um, that's ongoing for years, um, which means that none of the discovery timelines are complied with, right? The rules, the court rules say that 
from the time of arraignment, the district attorney has 10 days to produce all the evidence. And that's so that everybody can look at the same information, you know, evaluate it to see if there's any legal issues, do all the pretrial interviews, prepare the defense and go to trial. And so the, the district attorney has just failed to comply with the rules and drug this case out, which means that the defense then has to react and evaluate every new piece of information that the state comes up with. What constitutes a speedy trial just in the state of New Mexico and what's taken into account when a judge either dismisses a case because it's not been speedy or fair or chooses to move forward? Well, there's several factors that the court considers. One is the length of time. Have they met that initial threshold that we talked about, whether it's the 12 month, the 15 month or the 18 month? Once that's met, it's the burden kind of shifts to the state to prove why it's taking so long. And it was their valid reasons. Um, but the court also looks at, did the defense contribute to the delay? And in this case, they have. Um, we saw that Mark Ernest, when he was entered, actually um, argued that because he doesn't get an hourly rate from the public defender's office as a contract attorney, that he could not devote as much time as he needed to on this case. Um, and so some of those arguments are things that the court considers. The other thing that's really important for the defendant to be able to prove um, in order to meet the speedy trial burden is that they were prejudiced in some way. So people who are in custody, like held on a preventative detention hold, um, those people are prejudiced by the fact that they're in custody, that they've been stripped of their liberty and haven't been convicted of anything, right? It's very likely that that's why I believe it was Judge Brown um, that released him from custody, right? He had been in custody, I believe, almost four years when he was released. Now, they did place him on an ankle monitor and at one point told him he couldn't have contact with children. Um, but then I believe the following year, he was allowed to move in with his girlfriend who had children and could be around children. So it's a good sign for him that he hasn't you know, been in any trouble since he's been released. Um, but it reduces his ability to say that he's continuing to be prejudiced. When you look at this delay in particular, one of the other considerations that I think of is all of those witnesses. You had mentioned the uh, the witness list in the beginning. There are certainly still a lot of people involved, even though the witness list has been pared down from what it originally was. So from a broad perspective, as, as someone who's done this on both sides as a prosecutor and a defense attorney, when you have those delays and the witnesses lined up, is it hard to keep in touch with the people who are essentially the puzzle pieces to telling the story in this trial? How difficult does that become when you're relying on the words of others, the memories of others, the expertise of others to fit into a fair trial? In terms of like a drug expert um, who analyzed, you know, a substance that was collected um, or an autopsy, they have to testify to their own report. Somebody can't come testify to them. So in the world of COVID, if they said, I don't want to do this anymore. I reevaluated my life during COVID and I'm moving, I don't know, to Hawaii or whatever. Um, then they have to get them back. Um, so there may be that they have trouble finding the person. They might have switched jobs. They may have moved and not kept in contact. Maybe police talked to him in 2016 and there's been no follow up. So they you know, they don't contact every month and validate their address and then report to the court. So there could be significantly issues. People could have died of COVID. I mean, we just we just don't know um, at this point if all the witnesses are available. Uh, that's something that the district attorney is going to have to grapple with when they really go to trial. 
can cases ultimately be dismissed due to that factor? Like you mentioned, you know, if you can't get somebody here and they would, you know, play a key role in, in fitting those puzzle pieces together in front of a jury. I mean, what does that mean for some of these very serious criminal felony cases? Yeah. You know, the, there was a case down in the area where I used to work on the east side of the state. It was a homicide case. They didn't want to bring in the OMI doctor who had actually done the autopsy. They brought in somebody else and the case was overturned on appeal. Um, and that's how that case law comes down. So it's vital that they have the actual person. If the OMI doctor dies um, or moves, I don't know, out of the country, then they're going to have serious problems trying to present that evidence. It'd be very difficult to do this kind of case without an expert who actually examined the body for the physical, you know, things that caused the death. Perhaps this is a little bit too um, tough to call, but, but I did want to ask, do you feel that the delay has been justified or warranted in this case? Is there a perspective you have one way or the other? I do. I think if the district attorney would have done their job at the initial investigation, this case would have been to trial years ago. Since it hasn't gone to trial, do you feel this is a hard case for the prosecution to argue because it's been so long? I think, you know, they're going to have some challenges that aren't normally there. And then in the average case where it's fairly straightforward and, you know, there may be disagreement on how things are perceived. Um, But in, in this case, I think because of the public nature of the investigation where everybody got to see it unfold on the evening news, that there was huge problems, that there was uh, false confessions, you know, all of those kinds of things that the district attorney already dropped the most serious charges, which were the murder charge. I think they're going to have to explain that. Right. Why did they get it wrong the first time? And how do we know we got they got it right this time? And then also like what we were talking about, you know, are the witnesses still available um, that they need to prove this case? We've tried to make it clear you're not involved in prosecuting this case or defending this case. But as an attorney looking in, what does this case, Fabian Gonzalez's case, look like from just the criminal investigation side? You mentioned like, you know, as information was unfolding, Chris and I were two of the reporters who did report on you know, on this crime when it happened back in 2016. I remember being at the apartment complex. Chris was at the perp walk with Fabian. Fabian, what happened? Did you have anything to do with the death of this girl? <laughs> no, I didn't. I tried my best to protect oh, Michelle and the baby. But what happened then? Why is there a girl that's dead? That's because Jessica Kelly did it. There was a lot of information unfolding and then later changed, like you said. What does that say to you, though? Just, you know, how how was the police work, in your opinion, in this case? You know, it's, it's sad that people, you know, rush to judgment. I, whether I, I know that you guys have been following this closely, but everybody may not be aware that when the DNA came back um, from Victoria and from the crime scene, there was a, another suspect. Um, where is he? Right. The fourth person. We have determined that at least one unidentified man was involved in this crime and never apprehended. But, I mean, we are six years into this and police still have not figured out who the other person is. And so one of the things that's very crucial um, in all criminal cases, that it's very important for jurors to consider and the public to consider when they're looking at how a case unfolds is we don't just punish people because we need to punish somebody. We punish people and hold them accountable when it's the person who actually did the crime. And so the problem is with there was, you know, a false confession, it's going to be very hard for the district attorney to put forward 
you know, that we got it right this time. Six years later, we got it right this time, even when people's memories are faded. You know, that was the memory faded was in the second speedy trial motion that was filed last year. And even though the judge denied it, those are still issues that can come up at trial, right? If so somebody makes a statement, it's different than the statement that they gave in 2017, then they can be impeached with that statement. That's totally different. And then the jurors are left to try to figure out what to believe. And so, you know, I think they're going to have a hard time when two other people have taken pleas in this case, um, one facing 50 years you know, under the plea agreement, we have two other people who have taken pleas and one person that's still unidentified. Um, so in terms of the police investigation, you know, it's not a solid investigation. And so it what looks like is that instead of taking their time and trying to make sure that they did everything right and the information was solid, they made a rush to judgment, um, which really reflects poorly on, you know, successful outcome of this case. Lastly, just, I mean, obviously we know this was a high profile case. A lot of people cared about it just because of, you know, how, how heinous it was involving a child. I'm assuming people also have some emotion about this case, right? So do you imagine it could be tough to find a jury who doesn't know about this case? Or, or what are some of the challenge now through the pandemic in seating a jury for this particular case in Bernalillo County? You know, the defense filed a, a change of venue motion, which goes to exactly what you were talking about. In New Mexico, it's really a hard situation. Um, you guys, you know, in television media in New Mexico know that it's different than every other place in the country um, because it's one market, right, for the whole state. Um, you know, there's not television stations in Clovis and Tucumcari and grants and, you know, um, there's just not. And actually the east side of the state is in the Texas ADI. Um, so really to move something outside of the media market from Albuquerque would mean that the trial would be um, in Tucumcari, right? That's the one that's in a different media market where people are exposed to the high volume of information that we've seen. Now we've seen articles in People Magazine. I mean, it's gotten some national attention, but the bulk of it has been here in the state of New Mexico. So, you know, Tucumcari, which is in the Amarillo ADI, doesn't have the Albuquerque Journal, um, doesn't get the Santa Fe New Mexican. So they're not seeing all the same types of news coverage. Um, but it, the motion was denied, but it may be raised again. You know, one of the problems is when you question a jury, um, one of the things that the court looks for, because the, the motion can be raised again if the jurors say, yeah, I've seen this, I filed this story and it's horrific and he did it, right? I've already made up my mind. I've seen the evidence on the TV and he did it. Then they can't, they might not be able to see the jury, right? Because it's gotten so much media attention. And so, you know, that's one of the problems is that, you know, as an attorney on these cases, you want people who can be neutral, right? Who can just walk in and say, I'm just going to listen to the evidence and make my decision off of that. I mean, it is a horrific story. What we've heard, the dismemberment, the burning, I mean, this little girl having sex, just horrific, right? Um, but like we talked about, people have to be able to get over that and look at who actually committed the crime rather than just saying they arrested him, he's guilty, right? Um, and so if, the, if enough people say that they've already made up their mind, they've seen so much media, they have an opinion and that's it, then the judge could end up having to move the trial even after jury selection starts, which would mean that the judge from Albuquerque could go to another district like 
the 10th and Tucumcari, um, and then have jurors from that community. So there would be some consistency with the judge. It would just be a different jury panel. Do you see this trial happening this year? I know COVID is always a wild card in the mix of this, but do you see this trial finally maybe happening in 2022? Just from reviewing the pleadings, it looks like there's still some issues outstanding. Um, So there's a good possibility that it could go longer. So, I mean, obviously, I think we're going to see more. I I don't think that everything's done. I don't think all the motions are filed. Um, I think we're going to still see some evidentiary issues that could delay this even further. Thanks again to Jennifer Burrell for her insight on this very complex case. I also thought it was interesting, Chris, that she sort of uh, called us out there. New Mexico is unique in so far as, you know, the three TV stations here in Albuquerque cover the entirety of the state, which is, you know, very unique, but also does play a role in how criminal cases are heard or, or what attorneys take into account. Yeah, very much the news out of Albuquerque reverberates across the entire state. There's not many places that our newscasts don't actually air um, in New Mexico. It's essentially some of uh, the western edge of the state and some of the eastern edge of the state are really in Las Cruces area are some of the only sort of missing gaps of Albuquerque news. So in that context, virtually everyone has heard about the case of Victoria Martins. And Fabian Gonzalez, certainly one we'll definitely keep an eye on. In the meantime, feel free to contact us. I'm Gabrielle.Burkhardt at KRQE.com and GBurkNM on Twitter. Also, if you like the show, share it with a friend, give us a review on Apple Podcasts and check out our website, KRQE.com slash podcasts. Yeah, and you can also reach me. I'm Chris.McKee at KRQE.com. That's through email. And then also on Twitter, you can at me at Chris McKee TV. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.